Hello and welcome to the Dialogue Box. I'm Gwen Frey and I'm here today with Freya Holmer. Hello everyone. Hey, it's so good to have you here. I'm a huge fan of yours. I've been watching your stuff on Twitch, for, or sorry, um, on your Twitter gifts for a while. Um, for people who don't know, Freya is the, um, <clears throat> I believe you're the solo creator of Shader Forge, right? Uh, yes, I am. And uh, also from there, you, you founded a company, I think, and, and made um, budget cuts and a bunch of other stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is really exciting. I don't, I'm, I'm I've never, uh, we've never had the opportunity to meet. I've always wanted to get to know you. How did, how did this start? How did uh, Shader Forge come together? Uh, so Shader Forge started out when, kind of around the time when I switched from Unreal Engine to Unity. Uh, so when I came to Unity, uh, I, I was kind of looking for their material editor. You know, how do you make shaders in Unity? But there was no way to make shaders in Unity without coding, right? And I never coded shaders before. So I was, you know, I was looking into that, and there seemed to be like an old plugin called Strumpy Shader Editor, which didn't work for the version of Unity that I was using. It was kind of deprecated and abandoned. Uh, so, and that was way before Unity had their own shader graph. So there was this gap in, you know, the workflow of Unity where there was just no way to make shaders with a node-based editor. Um, and, you know, for me, I was just sad going into Unity because, you know, where's my material editor? It doesn't exist. Um, so, okay, so I sort of had to learn how to make shaders, uh, you know, how to code shaders by hand, write everything from scratch, which, uh, which even after I learned how to do that, even after I could make things with it, I felt that, well, this is still not really a good workflow. Yeah. You know, in, in a node-based editor, you can you can make things very rapidly. You know, you slap in a Fresnel node, you multiply that by something, and then you add a color, and then you have a property. But if you want to do all that stuff in a node-based editor, um, or, or do that in code, then that's going to take so much longer because the Fresnel node has a lot of implications for what yeah. you need in order to use that node. Then it's just like, oh, you need a view vector, you need a normal vector, you need to pass it from the vertex shader to the fragment shader and yada yada, right? Yeah. And it's yeah. just like, oh gosh, there's so much boilerplate. Why do I need to write this, right? Oh my God. Uh, and you're coming from Unreal. Honestly, the material editor in Unreal is amazing. Yeah, in, yeah. in Unity, when you do shaders, is it in HLSL or is it in C Sharp? I don't know anything about Unity. Uh, so Unity does HLSL, yes. Okay, um, cool. It's it's sort of you're kind of coding in something called CG, but it's so similar to HLSL that the distinction doesn't really matter. Uh, but yeah, you you do HLSL in Unity. Oh, dude, I have so many stories about stuff. Like, um, you can do something in Unreal where you can put an HLSL node and you can mm -hmm. like paste code in there. Oh, uh, you get like one function or something. It, yeah, and I think I, at one point. So I don't know anything about shaders, right? Like it's it, this is the side of tech art I don't do. And so I think at one point I found some HLSL that would blur. Like I found mm -hmm. a function of blur and I pasted that into a, a node. And then I just copy pasted that node three times because I wanted it to blur more. And yeah. I managed to just like <laughs> tank the frame rate for the game I was working on. I'm like a really yeah. nice machine, uh, which is just. So yeah. Anyway, that's a was, that's was that a, in a single shader that you did that for in a single yeah yeah yeah. I just and was it like in two directional like both vertically and horizontally or um I well it was kind of I think it was horizontally I well, okay, gotcha. yeah so I was just like I took a, I piped the thing basically I had the output for the shader and I piped it into a blur node. And then I just copy pasted that blur node four times. And I just kept piping it because I'm like, eh, oh. that'll make it blur more. And it worked. 
learn the entire input? Yeah, it was for it was a post proc material, I believe. Oh, okay. Oh, gotcha. It was post process. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought I like copied your entire node network and then did that for the blur, which would be pretty expensive generally. Yeah, I mean, if you so long as you don't do anything with HLSL, like the material editor is pretty careful about being like, you have this many instructions, you're not gonna fuck yeah, things up. Yeah. Whereas in like, I would, I, I love Unreal. I, I would, I would totally hate this. Uh, mm -hmm. So, okay, so you saw this, there was this need, because you yes, needed a, a exactly. node, and you... Uh, and especially, I, I was also doing, like, um, I was supervising students on projects at a game design school in Stockholm, mm -hmm. uh, who had also done the same switch that I did. You know, they just switched from Unreal to Unity. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just saw the anguish of all the artists of, like, where is my material editor? <laughs> you know, goddammit, Unity sucks, it's so bad, there's no way to make things pretty, uh, everything's ugly. Because um, that is kind of what happens if you don't have the tools to make things pretty, right? Yeah. Uh, but and that was frustrating to me because I knew that you can make things and look pretty in both Unreal and in Unity. It just so happens that Unreal is so much better for artists, or at least very much used to be. Um, I, I would still say still that. Is. Yeah, um, like I, I think the general consensus is that um, most people who artists love Unreal, programmers hate it, just because yes. what's going on under the hood. Um, mm -hmm. But I. You know, like I work entirely in Blueprint, so I love it. Yeah. I think it's perfect. Why did you switch to Unity? Uh, I think the, the first time I switched to Unity was because we had to at school. Uh, that was the first time I was introduced to it. Uh, but then the that was during the time of, let's see, that was before Unreal Engine 4. And Unreal Engine 3 or UDK was like, it was not super great for like starting from scratch. And there yeah. was like this Unreal script, which was kind of weird. Uh, whereas on the Unity side, you know, you kind of start from scratch uh, and you code in C Sharp, which is a very like simple and natural and useful language that it was a nice transition for me because I'd used Java before and it's very similar to Java. Um, so yeah, it was just much more accessible. You kind of start from scratch. Uh, whereas in UDK, it's just, you have this really weird esoteric language with very sparse documentation and no forum threads that you're going to find if you search for anything. Um, and when you press play in the editor, you like spawn with a dude with a model and you have like a link gun from Unreal Tournament. It's like, why, <laughs> you know, yeah. I just want an empty scene. <laughs> Where's my, you know, start from scratch button. So, so back then it was mostly because Unity sort of allowed you to start from scratch. Yeah, um, the ease of use, like the on-ramp was a lot better, I would say. I think so, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, so, so you were in uh, college when you wrote Shader Forge, am I understanding this? Uh, let's see, I never went to college or university. Or, I'm sorry. Uh, so let's see, I went from high school to this like short vocational education. It was like two years long, like one year education and then one year um, like internship. I see. Uh, so it's like a really short like game design education. Um, yeah, so that's sort of what introduced me to a lot of like game design stuff, which I'm not actually super interested in anymore. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that was uh, that was what I did then. And, you know, met a lot of people in the industry and, you know, many of my classmates are now in the industry. So yeah, that, that was like super useful. I see. Uh, and but yeah, so, and then, um, so you... sorry, I was going to loop back to Shader Forge. Yeah, 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 do it. Yeah, anyway, so so I the that was the same school I studied at, that's the school where I also did the supervising later. Um, but yeah, so 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 all of the art students were sad because there was no material editor in Unity, and that kind of like inspired me to do it, like start writing it and seeing like, okay, you know, how do you make editor plugins in Unity? How does it work? Um, and because now it was not only that I wanted to 
make a shader editor for others. It was also like, I want a shader editor, <laughs> you know? I want to, I want to, you know, have that material editor in Unity. Uh, so the, um, yeah, I got started on that. And then slowly it became something that started being useful and, and going through all of the things I need to learn in order to make Shader Forge was like extremely useful uh, because I need to cover like all the ground that shaders cover, sort of. Um, so that was really, really interesting. And yeah, so we had like a long, I, I ran like an open beta on, I think I had a like a thread on Polycount where, uh, you know, there, there were a lot of artists who started using it. I got a ton of feedback on that uh, and then started iterating from there. Um, That's yeah. awesome. So how long ago was that? That Like, when did you... Give me a rough oh, idea God. of the timeline here. <laughs> uh, when was Shader Forge? 2015, I think. Okay. 2014, 2015, somewhere. And I know, um, I saw that it's open source. Was it always open source? Or was that kind of like... No. Um, it's open source now. So it was... Uh, let's see. It was sold for a long time. So I think for four years or something like that. The uh, so I sold it on the Unity Asset Store, and given that like I was kind of lucky in the fact that there was a massive gap in the market for a shader editor, and it's kind of a big undertaking. So there's not a whole lot of people who even attempt to do that. Um, and even though Shaderforge is kind of like shoddily put together, and I hate my code there now, uh, you know it works, and people needed it. So um, yeah, so so I put it up on the Unity Asset Store, and I think at the time I sold it for ninety dollars. And in total, or like through, throughout the whole development or throughout the whole, uh, you know, while it was on sale, it gave, um, it sold for like two full-time salaries uh, throughout the whole thing, uh, which I think is probably pretty rare on the asset store. But again, it was really needed. Like this tool, a lot of people wanted this. So I think I just, I was super lucky in the timing of it as well. Um, so, so given that, that kind of, allowed us to start Meet Corporation. So that's how that studio got started because, you know, now we have funding, right? Uh, so, yeah. Interesting. So let's start with, you said we, because I thought, uh -huh. oh, Shader Forge was your initiative initially, right? Yes. Um, you brought in a partner I'm taking at some point to help uh, you with the code or like a business yeah. partner? Yeah, uh, the, I started Meet Corporation together with a someone who was at the same school as me. Uh -huh. uh, so I started with Jenny Nordenberg, uh, who also happens to be my ex. <laughs> <laughs> That's a long story I could go into, um, but uh, but yeah. So so we started that together, uh, and yeah. So that's been going on, and it's still going on, and I still work. Um, yeah. So so we kind of we started out we started out wanting to make a game called Flowstorm, which was like this weird two D side scrolling racing game, uh, which is like a weird little idea that I started back when I was at the, at the game design school, uh, but never really properly made it. Uh, so we kind of like started doing that, but then we went to GDC and we met with, we sort of like accidentally bumped into people from Valve. Uh, and that was right around the time when they were going to release their HTC Vive, um, or not release, but rather they were giving out dev kits. So we got, we actually managed to get like a really like early dev kit for the Vive, which was amazing because, you know, that was, you know, when VR started becoming interesting because it was now good it wasn't shit and you know it was pretty good resolution and things look um look pretty crisp not fully crisp of course but yeah and the technology was like it's really there so uh that kind of got us on the path of starting to develop the first prototype for uh, budget cuts cool that's awesome yeah. okay so all right 
And then Budget Cuts was wildly, well, it was pretty successful, right? Like that, that released, uh, I mean, I've heard of it, so I don't know how we define success. <laughs> yeah, it's actually really difficult to define success here because we released a, an early demo of Budget Cuts and that demo was extremely like well regarded and successful. <laughs> I was just surprised because generally like my experience with having people try your game it seems like a lot of the responses are like, eh, it's pretty good, you know, but it's not my type of game or whatever. Like that's a pretty common response. Um, but um, for budget cuts, like I'm not even kidding. It was like 99% positive. I, I barely remember any negative feedback. I got like maybe two people who I remember had a negative reaction to it. But otherwise it was just, people were blown away. Mm. Uh, and I don't know if it was like, oh, it's because it's new technology, it's new, new with VR and everything. Mm. Uh, but people felt that budget cuts took a pretty big step forward within the space of VR at least. Um, so that was just amazing. I'd never like experienced so much like people who just love it. Which yeah. was like, it was really fun, but it was also terrifying. Cause we're, we were sort of like, not entirely sure what we were doing right because we, we didn't get any feedback on like what we should keep or fix or like yeah um well that's the exciting thing uh, about vr especially when you got in there's no rules yet like nobody's exactly, figured out yeah. exactly what the right thing is to do yeah. and so there you you can kind of define that in a way and every exactly. experience is new and unique and i think in a way you're you're lucky because uh, you you're one of the very few number of titles when you were launching on the vr storefronts um and the people who've like people are excited about the Viver uh, when they bought it. They wanted to play games with it. You know, you've got the best, I think the best consumers are the ones that are the early adopters for technology. They're the, by far the most forgiving and the most like invested. They want you to succeed. Yeah, um, extremely excited too. Yeah, you were, you were, uh, I, I think that was a brilliant move, especially when you did it to get into VR. Are yeah. you, are you yeah. still excited about VR? Um, Probably not as much anymore. Um. So, oh yeah, to finish the arc about budget cuts. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, the the demo was extremely successful, but then the the full game I think was slightly less successful um, because then you know VR had moved a lot since the first demo, so then it wasn't as new anymore, and people already already played the demo, and then we also had like a bunch of like bugs that were pretty bad uh, during the launch. So we had a pretty rocky launch, but it had a really good. It worked really well like after that. It had a good tail to it. Um, mm -hmm. So, so that yeah it went really well and i mean we're still surviving as a company and we grew to 10 people full-time now so obviously it went well damn uh, but yeah yeah which is pretty i still can't believe it that somehow there are 10 people working at my company <laughs> it's pretty terrifying but yeah that's um, that is so cool this is such a great success story i love it and I, it's scary oh it is <laughs> i mean it, it is terrifying right like uh i'm Having employees is, you watch that burn rate go up and it's just like, mm, it, I don't know, it's a new kind of stress. Yeah. Every, every yeah. time your company grows, you experience a new kind of stress. There's like that new stress when you get um, just even the first handful uh, of employees. There's that new stress when you hit 15 employees. It just yeah. never ends. It's just like, it's like exercising a muscle. You just become more and more used to the stress, I think. Yeah, I suppose. But, but for me, I've sort of like sworn off anything business related. Yeah. So, so I'm just like, I'm, I'm not going to deal with salaries or anything. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna work on the game. <laughs> so, are uh, you are you all working on one game right now? 
so we recently released Budget Cuts 2, mm-hmm. and now we are working on um, we're working on a patch for Budget Cuts 2, adding some features and stuff as well. Uh, and we are also working on a game called Garden of the Sea, which is like sort of like a cozy gardening and hanging out with creatures game. <laughs> TM. I don't yeah. know if that's a genre, uh, but, uh, but yeah, so we're working on two VR games right now. That's awesome. So, okay. Oh, and also the PSVR release of Bunny Cuts. Got it, the port. So did you like um, split people into different teams? I think uh, one of the harder things for studios, indie studios especially, is how do you maintain cohesion? How do you make everybody feel like they're on the same, working at the same company when they're working on different projects? That's a problem. Um, I feel like it works pretty well because we're all in the same room and we are all uh, kind of switching back and forth between the projects, uh, sort of depending on need. So. Pretty much all of us have been on budget cuts now because we were so close to release. So now we're sort of like facing back to working on Garden of the Sea, uh, as well as the the last bits of um, of budget cuts. But but you know, but both of us are or all of us are both teams are sort of you know shuffling members back and forth every now and then, and we're always like hanging out together. Uh, so I don't think we've ever had that feeling of feeling torn by the different projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Do people, do you ever get friction where people wish they were working on a different project? They're like, oh, I don't want to work on budget cuts anymore. There's a new game. Why am I not cool enough to be in the new game? You know, do you? Oh, um, yes. Oh, you don't I don't know how much that actually occurs, mm-hmm. uh, but I knew, do know that I'm one of those problem problematic people. Um, so um, like, like one of the issues is that, or issues, I don't know how much of it is an issue or if it's just bad communication. Um, it's, um, you know, how do you decide who makes, you know, big decisions, right? Um, there's, we've always had this really, you know, bottom up rather than top down way of approaching things, which I think has both, you know, positives and negatives, right? The, the positive side is that everybody feels involved. They can actually, you know, have a say about everything. They can make decisions about, uh, what they're working on and suggest things to others and, you know, try to steer everything in a direction that they want, you know, the company to go and the project to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but the downside of that is that everything is sort of up for debate. Everything is, is questionable. Everything is something you can talk about and discuss, with, you know, about. Um, and what, what can happen then is that you, um, you can often get into long arguments about stuff and then, you know, whoever argues for the longest or has the most uh, energy to do that will quote unquote win the argument. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we've had a few instances like that, or at least I personally have, which have been a bit frustrating. Um, And I I feel like, uh, so so I have a little bit of an issue of, uh, I had a very, very strong burnout at the end of Budget Cuts 1. And that like heavily affected my stance toward Budget Cuts as a game and project. So it made it really difficult for me to want to work on it, right? Yeah. Uh, but um, but yeah, so so but but we sort of had to work on it because it's you know it's our biggest IP at this point, and it would sustain the company and all of those things. So it makes sense to work on that. Yeah, um, I had I had no uh, idea you were that big of a company to be honest. I'm actually really like seriously impressed. Did you grow organically? Like so you were kind of tired. Of, how many people were you at the end of the first budget cuts? Uh, let's see, we were five or six people, I think, plus two freelancers. Okay. I could be a bit wrong. I think that's around those numbers we have. Okay. And then you've, and did you kind of slowly scale or did you ramp up once you got funding, like really quickly because you got funding for budget cuts too, or? 
Uh, we've been slowly scaling up, yeah. I think we most of our hires have been in pairs, so adding two more people as we see a need, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that was kind of what we did. Got it. I have so many questions. How? Um, oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is awesome. I mean, you're—it's rare to see, like you—you're a continually successful, growing business uh, in the indie space um, over multiple projects, which is actually very difficult. And you've achieved making a studio that has that is working on multiple projects without a great deal of friction. Because the the pain points where studios fall apart usually a common thing in the indie space is you'll see people rally around one game they get really excited um they maybe somebody is a leader like probably your lead designer uh they make that game then it comes time to make game two and even if the first game was successful a lot of times that's in between the first and the second project is when studios fall apart because everybody was really excited to make a specific thing and once that thing is out getting everybody to agree on the next thing is extremely difficult um, and that's when you see a, a lot of friction and falling apart. And another pain point comes if you try to make, um, if you try to have multiple projects, because what you get is you get resent, people feel resentful. They're like, well, I don't want to be on the B team. I want to be in the A team. I want to work on the thing that's cool. Um, and so these, you're talking about it like, yeah, and then we just, you know, you know, then we, then we just slowly ramped up and the way you're describing it, you make it sound really easy, but this is incredibly difficult for most studios. What you've achieved here. Yeah. I, I think there's probably been a lot of friction that is invisible to me because I'm not, um, I am part-time there now. So I'm 50% at Need Corp. Um, and, and also I don't really like deal with like, uh, any like interpersonal stuff really at Need Corp. I'm very much like in the development side of things. Um, but but I mean, for sure, there has been, um, there has been some friction, but generally we, uh, we all understand each other. It's more like we don't really put people on projects uh, as far as I know, and in a way that makes them like feel like they're you know not useful or that they're put on, you know, the B team. Um, but so, so it's more like, Ideally, we'd all work on the thing we want to do. But if we're really clear about, you know, we need to work on, uh, we need to work on budget cuts too because, you know, A, B, C, D, and so forth. Uh-huh. Then that kind of makes sense to the people we're talking to. Um, so yeah, so that's why, and you know, we have people move between the A team and the B team quite a lot. So it's not really, it's very fluid and it's not really fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it seems to work really well so far for us. And I don't know if I have like a secret recipe for us or why that works, uh, but the yeah, it's been working pretty well. That's awesome. So you're you mentioned you're part time now. When did that start? When did you kind of back off? Uh, let's see. So when was that? That was probably when I came back after my burnout from Budget Cuts One. Oh, let's stick uh, into that then. So you worked really hard on Budget Cuts One. At that point, you'd grown the team to five people. Yes. You were, you got kind of burnt out. Um, how did, was, I mean, people are always asking how to, what to deal with burnout and how to, what to do after you ship a game. Yes. How does, uh, how did you recover? How long did that take? Was it just time? Um, it's pretty much a lot of time. It's difficult to gauge, because um, in some sense I haven't fully recovered from it either. Uh, so it's just like asymptotically dissip- dissipates sort of, um, but you know, the more you read about burnout, everybody just says, you know, the best way to deal with burnout is to not get it in the first place, <laughs> which is like, oh, okay. So it's just a very difficult thing to get through um, because, you know, well, I guess it's technically occupational burnout specifically, but, um, um, I think but what happens is that you, 
uh, the, the symptoms are extremely similar to, to depression, but tied to a specific uh, workplace or a project. Um, and what happens is that I just lost all motivation. I lost um, any drive to do things in general. Um, I started treating it as a, you know, it was quote unquote just a day job. I was going there. I didn't care about any discussions about design. I didn't care about any discussions about, you know, how to do this. And you, you're the co-founder for the studio. I, you're the one that, that yeah. like spearheaded this too. That's, so that's kind of insane. Like, I, no, I mean, I don't know. To me, not it insane. doesn't feel very insane. I, I guess usually uh, if there's a, I, I mean, there, there was two of you at the head of the studio, but usually like if the founder is, you know, disconnected from the project, the employees are, uh, that that makes the employees very stressed out and so there's a temptation okay. to pretend that everything is fine for instance uh, oh gotcha um yeah i mean i think um i think what happened toward the end was that as my burnout started ramping up the we kind of all knew what we needed to do there wasn't really you know that many large-scale discussions it was just you know we need to make the final content and we all have our areas of you know expertise and responsibilities and then we kind of do it right um, and, and like I mentioned before, we don't really have a very top-down structure. And even though like I'm a co-founder, I've never positioned myself in as some sort of authority in at the company. I've never done that. So I've always just been one of the employees. That's the way I've been sort of approaching everything. I see. And given that everyone else can also have input on stuff, I feel like we've always had that, you know, trying to make everything level in terms of um, hierarchy. Um, so, so I think that helped, you know, make it not as bad of someone who is quote unquote higher up. Um, yeah, yeah, I get it. So yeah. you really do have a, like a truly flat structure, basically. Uh, in theory, yeah, but there's of course also like social shenanigans that uh, makes it not actually flat. But yeah, there, that's always a conversation, right? Like a flat structure isn't truly flat. A flat structure yeah. is whoever um, is more popular or can, has the greatest stamina to as far as arguments go not necessarily yeah. the greatest arguments just stamina yeah like, yeah uh, I, I think that was a few of the things that that got me toward the end that just hit me where the burnout got bad uh, or actually i think that's what triggered the burnout in the first place where i got into so many arguments about stuff because i have strong opinions about design and i cared a lot about the design of a budget gets one uh but at a few points i had long arguments with people and uh, not to like talk shit about my colleagues, I love them all, uh, but you know, we all have opinions and then we get into disagreements and I just got tired of it after a while and I got too stressed because we had a lot of things to do. Um, so, so then I started disconnecting from the project and I started disconnecting from my job, I started disconnecting from all of that stuff. Mm. Uh, and as someone who sort of, this is toxic and bad, just to say that up front, sure. but as someone who, you know, judges and values myself based on the work I do, if I'm not excited about the things I do, that's a really bad combination because oh. that means I'm doing a bad job and the things I do are like mediocre at best um, and I don't feel excited and I don't value myself at that point and that spiraled into you know, the, um, the burnout and depression. So Yeah, I mean, I'll say a lot of like, I don't think that's I'm the same way like I I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing but that might be because I have the same problem like yeah. I I love 
I mean, I I value my work. My work is most of what I do. I spend most of my time working. Like this is my life, and I enjoy that. It's when it's going yeah. well, um, and when it's not going well, uh, you know, like, yeah, like then the thing that my purpose in life, the, like the thing that I do, the the yeah. you know, like I am the I am a game developer, and so it when it it's not going well. Um, yeah, I, I feel it too. And that leads to depression and it leads to me wanting to change the situation, you know? I, Definitely. Yeah. So I, I totally get it. Um, shoot, I had so many questions there and I just got sidetracked. Well, no. But the, <laughs> no, I uh, I think uh, going back to the, the flat structure thing, I'm actually a big... Pro- I, I think flat structures work really, really well when everybody is senior or on the same level. And... Um, also is kind of like respectful of each other. That's very important. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my problem with flat structures and the reason why I actually prefer hierarchies is with a hierarchy, you can have juniors. With a yeah. flat structure, you can't. Um, uh, for many reasons, right? Like you, I, I think it's important to foster the the next generation of game developers. I think it's important. Like once you reach a point where you're like, I have 10 years experience, I want to help two or three juniors along. It's important to be able to hire them and train them up and then someday they leave and they become seniors. You think this is, you know, like starting other people's careers. So if you do something like, um, like there's there's certain studios that are flat structures uh, that work really, really well, but they only hire very senior people. Yeah. Uh, and that- like Valve, for instance. Valve, I think <laughs> they, I'm not, I can't speak to Valve because they're very large. I don't know that them exactly, but I know of other studios that they do kind of do that, especially in the indie space. Um, especially smaller studios, it's a lot easier if everything is a negotiation, um, because you have a flat structure, then that's easier to manage. If you have a smaller studio, there's a size where that becomes untenable, uh, where you just need some sort of structure. I I believe like you can't, a hundred people can't all have opinions about how a gun is designed. Like it's at some point you have to have ownership over certain things. And that does organically happen even within a flat structure. But Uh I, I think like I, I talk about this a lot with other people and and I think my biggest issue with flat structures versus hierarchy is that you can't anymore uh, foster juniors. You can't raise juniors up through the ranks. You can't bring on people who are junior um, because if you do in a flat structure, then it, it's constantly, uh, you get a situation where there's a couple of different ways that can go and it's always bad, <laughs> you know, like. Gotcha. I think, um, I mean, we have brought on juniors and it has worked really well. I don't know, like, I guess this goes into like, what is the definition of a flat structure, right? Because again, that comes back to, you know, there's the uh, flat structure in terms of salary, flat structure in terms of decision-making, flat structure in terms of, you know, uh, social credit or whatever that would be called for like how much people respect people um, and so forth, yeah. Uh, But um yeah so, so i think we probably not had a fully flat structure because that's impossible uh so we've had juniors and whatnot but but it has worked really well as far as i know um the i don't think there's been any like big issues with that um and but but yeah i think there's there's definitely been some sort of um there, there's definitely been some sort of like micro the hierarchies within the team and whatnot but yeah. um but i think there's it has worked really well for us, at least. Um, but I can speak for as for why, but yeah. Sounds like everyone there is really chill. So that is also really crucial because yeah. we all like each other. Yeah, <laughs> um, that helps. <laughs> yeah, like we've always had this thing where 
we want us to have a good chemistry between everyone. Um, and I think that that's probably a big factor as for why all of this works. Like we never, like I think it's more important to have like people you work with that are, you know, excited to work on it and that you get along with well and that, that you can have fun together, right? Like if you could have that, even if they're not as good as someone else you could have hired, uh. like that's, I would much more, much better prefer that than some senior who everybody hates, right? Um, so, so I think that really helps in, you know, keeping the team together and making things interesting. Oh, absolutely. For like a million reasons. I mean, you spend so many yeah. hours a week. You spend most of your life at your job. You might as well work with people you like. Like it's yeah, exactly. uh, and and just in general, collaboration is so much better when when you get along with the people you're collaborating with. It, it'll never yeah. be. Yeah, I, I'm I'm all there. I totally get it. So why? Um, let's go back to you went down to part time. When did that start? Uh, so that was I don't I don't remember exactly if it was like immediately after my burnout or a bit later, mm -hmm. um, but. But part of uh, part of my burnout recovery process was to sort of rediscover why I liked making games in the first place, um, mm -hmm. because that was just gone. I didn't enjoy anything anymore. I just came home, ate food, and eating was like the best thing ever. That was my favorite thing. And then and then I just went to bed and woke up and went to work again. Um, if I could go to work, some days I couldn't even go to work. Um, but yeah, so so I felt like I was I was in a deep hole and I just had to take days off. So I took, I think I took a month off in total uh, and just like, okay, I need time away from this. Um, so during that time, I, for a while, I didn't do much. I was just, um, I don't know, eating and watching YouTube. That, that was my activities <laughs> during that time. Um, but then I started working on my own like indie games and like noodling around with Unity and stuff. Um, and slowly I kind of, you know, got that spark back. I got that excitement back. I'm like, oh, right, making games is fun. You know, uh, it's not just a business churn and a nightmare. Um, so yeah, I that sort of helps me get back on track and feel like I'm at home again. Um, which sounds a bit counterintuitive. Like I got burnt out making games, and then I make games in order to recover. Which um, yeah, sounds weird, but for me, that's kind of Making things is just what I do. Like whether I'm at work or if I'm at home, I, I just love creating stuff. Um, but what I create and under what circumstance and under what responsibilities matters a lot. Um, so so that was the big difference there. So you know, going into making my own stuff was really exciting again. And I I've sort of come to realize that I have to be excited about the stuff that I do. Like that's an incredibly millennial thing to say, but like I I can't do work that I hate. Um, I I can do it for like a month at most and then I, then I just die inside uh, so yeah I, I that that's just become something really important to me uh, which is why I sort of since then I continue being 50% because um, then at NEAT I can focus on the very specific things I can do uh, which generally is like tech art and shader related stuff uh, so then I focus more on that when I'm at NEAT which I enjoy much much more than than doing uh, gameplay code these days um, and then the other 50%, I do all of my streaming. I do all of my math, math shenanigans. <laughs> I don't even know what to call it. I do math animations on Twitter. Um, but yeah, so, so all of my other efforts have gone into that other 50%, uh, which has been, yeah, it's worked really well. I feel like I have energy again, and I enjoy doing the things I do. Oh, um, I, I so, enjoy the things yeah. you do too. Like, I don't know what it is that you do exactly. I can't really describe it either, but like the math. <laughs> it's really does... hard. 
Those images on the gifts you make on Twitter are just beautiful. Like I, oh, I didn't know you. math could be that pretty, Freya. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's why I make them because math is presented like almost always in such a boring way. I, I feel like there's, uh, I feel like there's a. I'm gonna I'm gonna generalize the stereotype now. I apologize for people who don't fall under those stereotypes, uh, but generally, people who are good at math and tech or stuff like that generally kind of only do that, and then they're bad at art and sometimes bad at design too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have people who are good at art or like good at presenting stuff and good at making things pretty. They are generally not interested in math or techie stuff. So then you have these like two camps, and like one of them can make math stuff and you know draw some pictures and do math. Uh, the other group can make things really pretty, but they just like hate math. They just remember it that this boring thing in college or whatever. Um, so, you know, given that, you know, th- there's not a whole lot of overlap in that Venn diagram of people who can make pretty math animations, um, which uh, which is sort of what I realized when I started making these things that they resonate so much with people, like way more than anything I've ever done before, because um, people are like, oh. So that's how sine and cosine works. Why weren't you, why were you not my teacher in high school? You know, <laughs> so is and, there and, is there an yeah. end goal with it? Well, the other side of this is like, yeah, nobody does this, but because I, I and it's super cool because uh, you're like a math influencer. I saw that on your Twitter. That's true. <laughs> like you're you're. A, yeah. I, I I still don't really like have it wrap my mind around what an influencer is, but I I like I get it. You stream, <laughs> you you show people cool stuff, you make entertainment and you make entertainment around math which is borderline impossible but somehow you're doing it uh is there do you have an end goal in mind or are you just doing this because it's fun and it's like a thing you can do and um so i think it was it like came together with several things at the same time sort of i had i had been working on a plugin in unity that sort of made uh recordings of stuff so i could record you know videos or whatever um and i added like added a bunch of features to make things look extra good. I added like quote unquote real motion blur or temporal super sampling if you want to be fancy about it. Uh-huh. Um, so I added that to that recorder. And then I started like doing some tests with like small animations. And I noticed that animations look super smooth if you have that sort of uh, motion blur between the frames. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, I kind of want to do like geometric animations. That would be super cool. And then I started working on like a vector graphics library. So then with these two things, like making math animations was just kind of the natural thing for me to try out. Um, so I started doing that. And it was supposed to be just a simple showcase for the vector library to do this like sine and cosine animation. Um, but yeah, that tweet just exploded of people who were like, oh, fuck, this is how it works. <laughs> like, um, yeah, it just seemed like this simple animation. I didn't even use words to explain it. I just said sine and cosine, drew some lines, and then that's it. And people just got it. Um, so so then I felt like, OK, um, so many people resonated with this. Uh, I've never, never seen such a response to any tweet I've ever done um, of people who were just like getting something, like a, getting a concept across that way. Uh-huh. Um, so. Yeah, so then I sort of started doing more and more things with that, uh, and partially because I think it's really fun. Like I, I think math is beautiful, but that's because I get it. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> you need to get to some point to understand what is beautiful about it, right? Um, so, so as for like an end goal, I think right now I'm mostly doing pretty things on Twitter. I think that's my my end goal. You know, whether that's explanatory or educational uh, math stuff, I sometimes do art as well using math, uh, but. I have 
plans for uh, writing a book about math and specifically like aligning it towards game developers. So like doing a like online book with math animations all over because things that are visual are actually interesting, you know, uh, instead of a textbook that's just text. Um, so yeah, I have plans for doing that. And I started writing the first chapter, so my uh, or one of the chapters. So, so my plan is to write a chapter. I think I'm going to go for trigonometry as the chapter, and you know, do that fully, do animations, and try to explain things in a very clear and concise way. And then um, my idea is that I'm going to release that first chapter for free, and then I'm going to uh, do like a push for funding through my Patreon, and then do the rest of the chapters. Uh, and then release that for free as well. So it's more like it's funded by Patreon, but it's going to be free in the end. Um, yeah, I think that's that's my vague plan. I haven't like fully like nailed down everything yet, but I have written like a long like index of all the things I want to cover. Um, and yeah, I think because you know I feel like I can do it, right? I, I have like evidence on Twitter now, given the response that I'm in a position where I can make math intuitive and interesting to people. Um, and so you know, there's a big opportunity to actually do something that's useful to people. Um, yeah. And also something I enjoy doing because that's important to me. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I think there's there's a there's something missing there because I get like I get so many people asking me like uh, what math do I need to know to make games? And yeah. I'm like, uh, well, I mean, vector math is good. It's on trigonometry and knowing matrices and spaces can be useful and stuff like that. But and then I'm like, oh, neat. Do you have a book to recommend? And I'm just like. No, I don't, because like the, the books that I've seen are like so technical and so dry and so programmer centric that it like hurts me. Uh, like it's it, it's frustrating when you're like um, when you're excited about math. Like it's so incredibly useful and powerful and neat uh, to use in games, but then you know all the content you can recommend people. Like it just looks boring and doesn't like convey the usefulness, doesn't convey the, the beauty of math and all of that. Uh, so I feel like there's actually, you know, you can actually do that. Um, and yes, yeah, so that was, sorry, that was like a long rant. No, I, I'm into it. Like, I love how passionate you are about this. This is really amazing. I'm, I mean, I have, I still have a million questions. Like, I, uh, I, I think part of, I'm an, I'm an entrepreneur. I started a studio. You are too. You co-founded a studio. I'm curious why you decided to go the root of having Patreon, basically make it free and then get um, get money through Patreon as opposed to perhaps making a class and selling it through Masterclass or something like that, like putting your work behind a paywall. Um, have you considered that? Is there, uh, I, I, like, are you just applying like open development processes that you're used to, to um, and that you enjoy to this new venture or? I think, um, so I think for me, uh, monetizing the stuff that I do is sort of just a necessity. Like yeah. I need it in order to pay rent, right? Um, or like get new gear for streaming or whatever. Um, and ideally, in an, in an ideal world for me, I wouldn't have to worry about money and I could just release everything I do for free, like whatever games I make, whatever math shenanigans I do. Um, so that's sort of what I would like to do. But of course that's not possible because the living is not free. Um, so, and there are different routes you can go. Like you mentioned, you could, um, you could, you know, do a paywall and all of that. Uh, but, but for me, that is, I, I feel like it's a, it's a good way to do it in some regards, but in some regards not. Cause I, I love being able to be like, Hey, here's the thing I'd made. 
go consume it, you know, <laughs> go have at it and do the things you want to do with it, right? And giving things away for free, there's, um, that's really, like, people love that. Like, it's it's nice to have free content, you know? Yeah. Uh, but, of course, the problem is funding that. How do you fund stuff that's free? Um, but I think, I think going through Patreon could work uh, for me as for funding. Um, so I... I'm hoping it can grow into something that's sustainable, uh, but it's of course going to take a lot of work. But, but I think something as useful as math and something so like ubiquitous, I think it's like morally a good thing to release that for free, you know. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, that's just why I I want to do that. No, that... I, I could probably like earn more money if I had a paywall or whatever or masterclass or Udemy or whatever I would do. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. Okay. How do you, uh, you're basically working two jobs now though, right? Yes. Uh, are, are you feeling the stress from that? Are you concerned that might burn you out again or? Um, I don't think so. I'm sort of, right now I'm sort of treating Neatcorp as, you know, a regular job uh, for the most part. I'm not really involved in design processes anymore. I'm not super involved in any like big decisions like that. Uh, so I kind of mostly, it feels more like a freelance for Neatcorp now than, you know, working you know, as a core member of some team. Mm -hmm. uh, so so I feel like it works pretty well. And of course, I also have to do it because I need money. Yeah. <laughs> and all of my streaming stuff is not getting me even close to that amount of money. Um, but, you know, uh, yeah, so so I sort of, I still still do that and I still really enjoy doing that stuff. Uh, and I, I still hacking love my colleagues and everything. So that's, uh, yeah, I think it's really, I think it works really well. And there's, of course, like a, a risk of burnout, but as from the time that I spent at Neatcorp, I kind of have very strict hours now. I sort of, not not like counting them every day, but um, I, I try to keep keep that very strict. I don't do any of that work when I'm at home or after uh, work hours. Uh, so I think that, you know, helps me retain a healthy balance there. Um, and then as for my other stuff, um, you know, I do streaming and that's pretty taxing in general because you have to like be, you know, think about code while also being social and interesting. And it's a weird combination of things you need to do. Um, but yeah, so, so that of course is taxing, but it's also a bit more flexible. Yeah. So why do you, yeah, I, God, I have so many questions still. So like the streaming, did that, did you start out streaming and then start, what's the order of operations here? Like when did you first start putting GIFs on Twitter? What do you, is there a thing that you consider your primary thing? Like is your primary goal Patreon? Uh, did you start out Twitch streaming and then get a Patreon? How did you uh, start becoming started, an influencer? I'm oh, sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, no, no, it's okay. I, like, like, how did you go from zero to influencer? And was there a strategy or a goal in mind, or did that just kind of organically happen? Um, so, I mean, I do have some like high-minded goal of like it would be really nice if I could be totally independent and do indie game, indie games on my own, right? Um, that's sort of what I would like to do. Um, so I think. That has been like a goal for me, a very like long-term goal. I don't even know when or if it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, but so that's sort of been at the back in the back of my head for a long time. And then I've I started streaming because I wanted to work on one of my indie games again. The the one that I mentioned earlier, Flowstorm. Uh, yeah. Neat like abandoned that project, and then I picked it up again and you know rewrote it and you know made it into my own thing. That's that um, little spaceship and, thing, right? That uh, if yes. I recall, yeah, 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 yeah that game's cute. Um, yeah, it's a very strange game. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so that's what I picked up on. And I did stream like a really long time ago at like livestream.com before Twitch and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I just remembered that. And I remembered 
uh, it was a pretty good way to keep motivated. Like you're when you're put like in a you're sort of on a stage, right? Like you you have to perform, and even though people might have you on a tab and not really focus on you, it feels like you have thirty people when it says thirty, right? Um, so so then you get this like push for you need to do things at all times. You, you can't procrastinate at all um, unless you're having like conversations with chat or whatever. But Mm -hmm. That's engaging to people. So I, I go back I and know. forth on streaming while developing because, like, uh, you can't sit down and think deeply about things or do high-level structural yeah. stuff. You know, like you kind of want to speed. You do things quickly, and you get to the things that look coolest rather than the things that really need to be done. I used uh, to have that problem, but then I found a solution that worked pretty well. Um, so I've had like several like occasions where I've done streaming before. Um, I did stream for a little while when I was at Neatcorp working on Flowstorm. Uh -huh. um, and then I run into that issue like hardcore. Because uh, I was just like, okay, I am streaming. This needs to be entertainment. I need to make this as fancy as possible. So I'm just going to work on the pretty things and then just kind of ignore the the you know underlying systems or whatever. Uh, which which is bad, like you mentioned. Like what happens is that you start just doing all the shallow stuff. And the underlying stuff is just garbage. Nothing is standing on anything. It's just cardboard taped together. Um, it's also it's, like well, for the words than actual games. <laughs> yeah, it's also um, just like the lower level stuff. You you just need some time to sit and literally think in silence. At least I do. Like I can't yeah. talk through it when I'm when I'm thinking about some of the lower level stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, but what I found that worked pretty well was that I think for me it wasn't really that I couldn't talk about it. It was more like. I felt that it was boring and I shouldn't talk about it because it's boring, right? Mm. Um, and, and to some extent I do need some, some, sometimes I also need like some, you know, some head space where everything is kind of calm and I don't need to react to things people are typing. It can be pretty stressful sometimes. Uh, but what, um, what I started doing that helped a lot was I, um, I started getting really verbose. Wait, is there a good version of verbose? I feel like verbose has negative connotations. Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, wordy, descriptive. Uh, you started talking through your. Yes. Yeah, okay. There you go. So, so basically, what I started doing was that I would start kind of rubber ducking myself at all times. Mm -hmm. uh, so, like, if, if I'm working on some system, I always talk about what am I thinking. I just kind of like just gush out all the things in my head. Um, and that kept things interesting. Like even though I'm working on something quote unquote uninteresting, um, it can become interesting by like talking about, you know, what is the process of doing something like this? Uh, how do you make an undo system? What are the options and all of that stuff, uh, which I have done on stream. And that was kind of fun and exciting to like, uh, everybody sort of joined in on this journey of doing some weird system that I'd never done before. Um, and it worked really well. Um, so, so I think in terms of like streaming as entertainments, working on uh, working on games is um, you can do it. It's just kind of exhausting because you need to talk at all times. Uh, but it definitely works. And for me, at least, it was like it kept me going in a in a really nice way. Yeah. Um, I... And like uh, on top of that, you also like you know streaming is social. You you start interacting with people. You get to know people and. You know, we start getting regulars who are there at all times. And I have no idea how they fit that into their schedule, but they're always there, and it's lovely to see. Um, and yeah, so you start start building this community, and yeah, it's it's really fun. Like I, I enjoy it so much at this point. Yeah, I I go back and forth on it a lot because I don't get that much done compared to you, I think. But I do. Uh, it helped. I thought it was the most valuable for me back when I was starting out in Kind, and I was a solo developer. Like 
just the mo- finding the motivation to work more after work. It's really easy to slack off. And there was just like, I needed to grind out some stuff. And I, it is so helpful to know that people are watching you and stuff. Uh, and it is fun to build the community. So I definitely see the upsides. I definitely mm-hmm. see that it is still like work though, you know, like it's surprise being social is draining, at least for me. Like, yeah, uh, yeah like, uh, and working and being social at the same time is, uh, like it, sometimes I shut down the stream and I'm like, wow, I need a nap. Like it, it yeah. is actually surprisingly draining. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that too. Um, and um, there, there's something about like being educational as well mm-hmm. that drains me. I notice that when I've like given like courses uh, class or given classes on stuff, like um, I, I just, I don't know, like even just giving a class after that, I have a headache, I'm really tired and I feel like I can't focus on anything. It's just like, I'm just dead after that. And that happens so often after streams where I'm just like absolutely exhausted. Um, but but yeah, it's it's but, weird. Yeah, but you enjoy it. This is awesome. So uh, how long, I'm, I won't keep you much longer. I know this has been going on quite a while. No, I I'm, I'm, I can go for another hour or something. Oh, else. don't say that. We probably shouldn't go that long, <laughs> but uh, we, can do this again at some point. we should, we should definitely do another one. How long have you been streaming? What do you say? Oh, I think a little more than a year at this About point. A year, a okay, year cool. and something. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. Yeah, we should end it here. And I, when do I want to, I want to have you back before you, um, right before you launch uh, your book. Do you think that's going to be a while or how long do you think oh, that's going to be? Oh God, did I ask the wrong question? <laughs> I have no idea, uh, to be honest. I, I think what, I, what I'm gonna start doing is I'm, like I mentioned, I'm gonna release a, a single chapter and then do that, just go public with that chapter and then sort of do a funding push through my yeah. Patreon. Um, I think that's my goal right now. Um, and you know, part of why I go with Patreon instead of Kickstarter or like GoFundMe or something, mm-hmm. it's just I, I have no idea how long it's gonna take. Um, and I have no idea how much would be sustainable, uh, but with Patreon, it's kind of it's more predictable for me because it's a per month thing, um, mm-hmm. and people stick around for quite quite long, which is, is really good. Um, so so I think that's more sustainable. So even if it takes a long time, I do have the funds to be able to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas a Kickstarter is kind of scary because you get this like lump sum, and mm-hmm. they're just like, oh, I have no idea what I can spend or how much I can do per month. Or yeah, it feels a bit more unreliable. And then once that's up there's like no more money yeah. uh, whereas on patreon it's it feels like there's more safety to it uh but you know the downside with patreon is that people are probably going to hesitate more to support you because it's per month and maybe they just want to give a one-time sum or whatever but but we'll see how it goes it's it's kind of an experiment because like so, i have no idea if people are going to support me through patreon for you know a project like that especially when i'm doing so many other things than you know that math book well, do you think yeah. that's one of the things I thought Patreon make, might make sense for you, right? Because you can have people give you money and you're like, "What? this money funds is the stuff I do. And the stuff I do is this list. I'm working on this book. Also, I do these awesome uh, Twitter gifts and you're, uh, and I do, you know, you just list out all the things you do and people can pay you each month. And it's just like every month you just give a digest of what you did. And I think that works really well for it seems to me like you're somebody who just wants to follow your muse, just wants to do what's most exciting to you in the moment. And so there might be yeah, months where you work more so. in the book and more where you don't. And so that that totally makes sense to me. Is it possible uh-huh. to set up something like a PayPal so people can just tip you, like a tip jar of some sort? Uh, I have that. Uh, let's see, I guess people have donated through Stream. 
Uh, but I also have a PayPal. I just never link it to people, I suppose. Yeah. I guess I, I'm just like mildly curious how influencer stuff works because you mentioned like that. I do think it's weird in Patreon that you can't just give somebody um, money. Like at one point I wanted Alan Hazelden to buy a game and I'm like, I just need to send you the money to buy this game. And I realized I couldn't like there right. is no yeah. you can't just send money one time, which is really weird. I don't get it. Yeah, I I feel like um, there are like upsides and downsides to it. Right. But but I think the predictability of Patreon is makes a lot of sense. I think if you could do one-time donations on uh, on Patreon, I think what would happen is that you would get more people donating just once. And I think you get less people who support you long-term, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you, there would be a little trade-off there where you lose long-term support because there is a feature of just donating yeah. once, um, rather than having like, oh, let's just do $1 per, per, you know, per month or whatever. Um, so, so like, I think, the that's a big advantage with Patreon, where it is guaranteed to be not guaranteed, of course, because people can like leave your Patreon, but mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's sustainable, um, even though growth is harder. Uh, yeah, yeah, I dig it. Well, this is awesome. I can't wait to have you back again, Freya. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. All right, this has been Gwen Frey and Freya Holmer, and you've been in the dialogue box.